Why don't you stay standing with me? We're going to read the scripture for this morning from the opening lines of the book of Revelation. It will be on the screen. You can follow along. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it. Take it to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John writes this to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Now read this out loud with me, this last verse right here. Verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Read it one more time out loud. Ready? I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much for standing. Well, welcome to week one of a series uh, that we're calling The Lamb Wins. Now, what we're doing, if you don't know what I'm talking about, like what's the lamb, who's the lamb, what are you talking about? I didn't know we were talking about agriculture. Um, we're not talking about agriculture. Uh, we're over this summer. We're going to work our way through the book of Revelation. Revelation is the last book in the Bible. Uh, it is a book full of symbolism and allegory and metaphor and fantastic imagery, and it's very confusing. Uh, it's been interpreted and misinterpreted and understood and misunderstood and applied and misapplied. And we're going to do our best over the course of the summer to understand the message that is in it for us today. Now, here's my hope. My hope is that as we do this, that you experience a spiritual and a heart renewal. Uh, You know how we, at the beginning of the year, January, I'm not quite sure, I guess it's the turn of the year, that we make all these resolutions and we turn over a new leaf and we're going to, how many of you, and it's okay to admit that you failed because I did too and this is a safe place, how many of you failed at keeping your New Year's resolutions? Okay, all right, fantastic. We're all together in that. Uh, You're not alone. Look around. Uh, I, I would suggest to you that the summer, because of the rhythms that change and how the pace changes and Uh, I would suggest to you that the summer is actually a better time to begin a process of spiritual and heart renewal. And if you want heart renewal, the best place I know to start is always to start where the book of Revelation starts, where we're going to start today, with Jesus. You want heart renewal, always start with Jesus. Now, I want to suggest to you, even if you've never read the book of Revelation, Uh, You've just heard about the book of Revelation. You've heard people talk about the book of Revelation and the end times and what's to come and all of the things that go along with the book of Revelation. I want to suggest that if if you read it, how you read it matters. If you think about it, how you think about it matters because it plays itself out in your life. Uh, I was uh, a freshman in high school in 1988 and circulating around the church that I was a part of, even I think some kids at school brought it to school was this book that somebody published, and the title of the, it's like a pamphlet more than a book, was 
88 reasons why Christ will return in 1988. Anyone that was alive in 1988, remember that? Anybody? Yeah, some of you, yeah. Uh, and I, read, I, I got this, I'm like, oh my gosh, my life's done, I'm a freshman in high school, that's all I got, and Jesus is coming back, because as Christians, we believe Jesus is going to return, and uh, I'm like, that's it, what? And so I kind of waited in 1988, thinking, I guess this is it, I guess I, I'm peaking at my freshman year in high school, that's not great, and 1989 came, Jesus did not come back. Uh, uh, the person who wrote that got their understanding that Jesus was going to return from their reading, their interpretation of the book of Revelation. Uh, uh, not too much longer after that, a guy by the name of Harold Camping, uh, on September the 6th, 1994, he published, he said, listen, I have, I have decoded the message of Revelation. Uh, I've dug all the way back into the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, and he had this uh, convoluted understanding of how it was, it was all going to play out. And he said, but September the 6th, 1994, we all need to be ready. Jesus is coming back. I've figured it out on September the 6th, 1994. Now, never mind that Jesus himself said, no man knows the hour, not even the Son, only the Father and those to whom he reveals it. Never mind that Jesus said that. Harold Camping knew it was going to be on September the 6th, on 1994. Guess what did not happen on September the 6th, 1994? Jesus did not return. <laughs> he didn't get a clue. Uh, he didn't do what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians and test everything. He didn't do that. Uh, and so he said, well, okay, I, I miscalculated. Got it wrong, guys. My bad. Uh, May the 21st, 2011. He even took out a website and uh, encouraged people to sell their businesses. In fact, one doctor took him up on it. Uh, he s- laid off all of his employees sold his business. He said, because after May the 21st, 2011, no one's going to need to work. Jesus is coming back. Guess what did not happen on May the 21st, 2011? Yes, just know Jesus did not return. Now, here's, here's why this is important. Uh, those people, and there have been people like that throughout the history of the Christian church, uh, they all got that from their understanding of what the book of Revelation was trying to teach them. The book of the Revelation, the book of Revelation is probably the most non-literal book of the Bible that is most often taken absolutely literally. It's a little bit of a confusing thing. So if you've been around the Christian world in the last 20, 30, 40 years, you've seen a whole bunch of books come and go, ideas come and go about what's going to happen, and maybe you haven't heard of all of those books. I'm not going to, and I think most of them are not, have not been that helpful, uh, but it, it, they've massively influenced Christians. They've put fear into people, that they, they respond to God out of fear and not out of love. Uh, they've influenced Christian, Christians in their political understanding and what's supposed to happen in the Middle East. Uh, and and they've, what they've ha- has happened over the course of these last number of years is the most non-literal book in the Bible has been taken the most literally and created the most chaos. And so we're going to try and back the train up and understand what Revelation is about, the message of Revelation, what it means for us, us today, and then uh, begin to understand how we might work that into our life. So let's start with a basic understanding of what Revelation is. It is a letter. It is written by a guy... Uh, named John. Most scholars think that this was John, the disciple of Jesus, who wrote uh, the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Most think it was that. John was exiled to the island of Patmos, which is off the coast of modern-day Turkey. We've got a map here, and he wrote a letter to seven churches. In the, in later in the summer, we're going to look at the letters that he wrote in Revelation to those seven churches, and you can see there's the island off the coast, 
And then they're all in a circuit, and he writes the letters to those in turn and ends with, uh, uh, with Laodicea, which we'll, we'll talk about that. So he's writing this letter to Christians who are trying to figure out how to be Christians in a world that is corrosive to faith. Now think about it like this, okay? I know you don't want to think about the winter. Summer just started. I don't want to depress you. But you know when you get into the winter, you have to fight this. The, on the, the metal on your car fights this battle with the corrosive salt that gets put on the roads, right? It's a battle every day. Paul, uh, John is saying to us, listen, there is a corrosive battle against your faith that you have to fight every day. And so he's writing this letter, helping them understand it. And he uses all this symbolic language. Now, if you've never read any of the book of Revelation, you've still heard some of the things that are in it. The Antichrist. Antichrist is actually not mentioned in the book of Revelation, but many people assume that it is. Uh, The Beast. Armageddon. 666. How many of you have gotten a bill at a restaurant and it's $6.66 and you feel terrible for the rest of the day? Like, oh my gosh, right? It's from the book of Revelation. Now, John starts off and he tells us what the book is. Very first verse, he says, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation, the word there is the Greek word apocalypsis. Turn to your neighbor and say apocalypsis. Apocalypsis. It's where we get our word apocalyptic. Now, when we think of apocalyptic, we think of things that are going to be of death and destruction, and we have movies about apocalypse now, and we've got uh, all those kinds of imagery uh, that comes to our mind when we think about that word, but the original meaning of that word simply is an unveiling or an uncovering. It's like that commercial, I think it's, again, you don't want to hear about Christmas, but it's at Christmas time, and this guy gets his wife a car, and she comes outside, and it's covered in a, a drape, you know, and you can tell the shape of what the gift is, but it's you unveil it, you apocalypsis it, you, un, you pull the cover off so that you can see what's underneath the veil, and that's what John is trying to say, is that we're going to unveil uh, who Jesus Christ is. That's the heart and the core and the message of the book of Revelation. We're going to pull the sheet off, and what you'll see as we go through these next several weeks is that the sheet that he's pulling off is draped over what is very obviously a cross, and it's the crucified God that is unveiled to us as we uh, go through the book of Revelation. Now, many people, when they read the book of Revelation, they're looking for coded language that tells them what is going to happen. We'll talk about all that in uh, the weeks to come, but you need to understand something. If, you, if that's the, the mindset that you're in as you're walking in, you're like, oh my gosh, we're going to find out. He's going to tell us. Uh, you need to understand that anytime there is what is the Bible calls prophecy, that it, it points to Jesus. In fact, Revelation says this in Revelation 19. John says, it's the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to who? To Jesus, not to uh, what's going to happen and what timetable or what day. The point of it is to understand, uncover, reveal, discover who Jesus is. And so why do you reveal something? Well, you reveal it to understand it and to own it. So think about Christmas again. Uh, Those presents that are under the tree, that are wrapped, when they're covered, right? And when you rip the cover off that's the apocalypsis that's the unveiling of what's in the presence uh, in the present and that symbolic language that we're going to learn about as we go through the book of revelation is the wrapper but in this is important inside the wrapper when you uncover everything the thing that john wants us to find inside the wrapper is jesus who jesus is how good he is 
and how we can follow him faithfully in a world that so easily compromises and corrodes our faith. So we're going to start where John, where John starts with an understanding of who God is, who Jesus is, and how we can begin to follow him. So this is what he says in verse 5. We'll put this on the screen. He says that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the king's of the earth. So Jesus is the faithful witness, meaning that Jesus always tells us what God is like. I have a friend who says it this way. He says, Jesus came to clear up God's reputation. That we have all these ideas. God's like this. God's like that. God's this way. And Jesus said, nope, I'm the definitive definition of what God is like. What, if you want to know what God is like, God is always like Jesus. He is the faithful witness who tells us what God is like. And then Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Um, What he's saying is Jesus is the first one that experiences the resurrection. And so what happened for Jesus' body on Easter Sunday morning is what will happen for all of creation and for you and for the loved ones that you have passed on who knew the Lord. You will see them again. He's the first one that experienced what all of us get to experience, resurrection. I, I say this uh, all the time when I, uh, I, I do a funeral and I'm trying to give hope to the family. And I, I point them to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where the Apostle Paul writes beautifully about how Jesus is the first taste. He's the fir- what, what the scriptures call the first fruit. We don't quite know what that is, so my analogy is always uh, con- uh, county line orchard in the fall. You go to County Line Orchard, in the, I know it was just open the other day for donuts, I get it, I missed it, but I'm just thinking about the fall now, right? You go there, and you stand in line uh, the first day that it's open, like I do, and you go there, I don't know if something's wrong with you and you like the apple cinnamon, or if you are a godly person and you like the pumpkin, I don't know which one you are, I don't know, I don't know, I, mean, I don't know, I'm just saying, uh, I, I don't know which one you are, whichever one you are, you go and you stand in line, and you see them come off, like me, you see them come off the conveyor belt, and you take the donut, and it's warmth and beauty, and you let it melt into your mouth, and it's the first taste, so that you know that every donut you meet for the rest of that season, that those donuts are available, you know what you're going to get. This is what John is saying. Jesus is the first taste, because he was raised from the dead, the resurrection is available to all of us, and so he's the firstborn from the dead. And then he says that Jesus Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth. In other words, Jesus is the superpower. Uh, Superpowers come and they go. The Hittites, the Sumerians, the Assyrians, and unless you're a history geek, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Those were the superpowers of their day who rose and then they fell. (laughs) You know superpowers. You've heard of the Greeks and the Romans and the Ottoman Empire and the British Empire, and now it's just an island we, we think, though, because we're America, we think we're the superpower. We're going to go on forever. No, no, uh-uh. We are not the end of the superpower. Jesus Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And someday the American dream will fade, but Jesus will always rise, okay? So this is what John's telling us about Jesus. And so he goes on, he says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. So he wants us to know that God loves us, that if we could get it into our bones, that God loves you, that if you could sink down deep into your heart into the place where you think about yourself and you understand yourself, that you could hear the message from God through Jesus. I love you, I love you, I love you. He wants us to know that God loves us and that he freed us from our sins. Here's the the wonderful message of Jesus that John wants us to get, that you are never stuck 
in any of your sins. Have you ever been in a place where you think, I don't know how to stop that? I don't know how to stop that thought. I don't know how to stop that behavior. I don't know how to stop it. The beautiful message that John gives us is because Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the one that loves us. He gives us the power to be free from our sins. We are never, ever stuck. The beautiful message that John gives us. And then he says that we're we're a kingdom uh, and we're priests. In other words, we belong. We have a seat at the table. We're invited in. We're not kept on the outside. And then we have a purpose because we're priests. You you know what priests are, right? They go between people and God. They help people to know God. You have that as a purpose in your life if you know Jesus. And so then John goes on. He says, look, and that Jesus, that one I'm telling you that I'm unveiling for you with this letter, that one is coming in the clouds. Now, if you don't know uh, where John is getting that imagery from, he's getting that imagery from what happened in the book of Acts, chapter 1. When Jesus was with his disciples after he rose from the dead, and he says, listen, guys, I want you to wait, gal, women, I want you to wait here until you receive the gift that my Father has promised, the Holy Spirit. And, and as he was saying these things, this is, we'll throw it on the screen, Acts chapter 1, verse 9. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and the cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. See, John is saying there's tremendous hope. The disciples who read that originally, they, they, they were there. <laughs> They're like, oh, he's going to come back the same way. And so then John gives us this amazing image we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at. In verse 8, he says, I am the Alpha and I am the Omega. I am the Alpha and I'm the Omega. I, I am the, the, if you don't know, the Alpha and the Omega, I think we have it on the screen for you. I'm not sure if we do. Uh, the Alpha and Omega, the Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet and Omega is the last letter in the Greek alphabet. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first. I am the last. I am the beginning. I am the end. And so it, these are things we've got to understand in your life. Who is the first? Who is the last? Who begins everything? Who ends everything in your life? You have to ask yourself that question. I want to say that to the graduates, but I want everyone to overhear that. You need to know who's the first and who's the last in your life. So let's think about this for a second. When he says that he's the alpha, he's, the alpha means he's the start. He's the one who started all this. Now, you, you know, right, when you pick up a book and when you open the story of that book, whoever writes the story, whoever writes the book, decides what happens with the characters. So if that person decides what happens with the characters, it makes sense that we would pay attention to what that person says. See, when you're starting out in life, especially if you're a high school graduate, you think, man, it is up to me. I'm going to make my way in the world. No, you don't need to make your way in the world. You need to figure out the story that God is writing and be a part of the story that God is writing. That's what you need to do. That's where you need to go, and that's where you need to start. He was there before you began, and because he writes the story, then he can give you the advice. Because, see, we're in the middle of our story, and we don't understand why things are happening to us. Have you ever had an accident happen? Or you've lost a job? Or a relationship is broken apart? And you just, you do the thing that we all do. We go, why, God? The reason we say that is we're in the middle of the story and we don't know. 
So we have to go, we have to have someone that says, okay, they're writing the story and they know how to make sense out of all these pieces that I can't make sense of. The author knows what is happening in the story. The one who wrote the first chapter is writing your story. He's the alpha. Now we have another meaning for alpha. We talk about the alpha male, you know, like the biggest and baddest dude in the room. And in a couple weeks when we look at how Jesus is described in Revelation 19 as the rider on the white horse, one of my favorite parts of Revelation. It says in Revelation 19, and written on his thigh was the words, King of kings and Lord of lords. In other words, he's got a tat saying King of kings and Lord of lords. I'm not trying to tell you to go get a tat like that because you're not Jesus. I'm just saying he's got a tat. And, and Psalm 2 says it this way. He says, when the nations conspire and the, the kings rise up, he says, the one enthroned in heaven, the Alpha, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Here we are wringing our hands over, you know, what's going to happen with North Korea and Russia? The, the, the Alpha male goes, I got all this. I'm not worried about all of this. I'm the biggest and I'm the baddest. I'm not in any way shaken by what's happening in your world. And if the one who writes the story, that's the one whose advice you need to be taking with your life. Because only the author of the story knows where the story is going. Uh, then John says that he's the omega, so that's the end, right? Whoever gets the last word. Now, I know I, know I don't ever fight with my wife. Uh, <clears throat> right? No, that's not true. That's not true. You know, though, right, when you're having an argument, who, how do you feel like you've won, right, when you get the what? The last word. Oh, yeah, well, you've heard of her, right? You want to get the last word because you feel like you won. Guess what John is saying about Jesus, that he gets the last word. He closes the story. He writes the last chapter. Now, maybe you've read the book, right? You've read a story, and you read the characters in the first few chapters, and then the middle of the story where all these things happen, you don't know how it's going to end. Maybe you're like me, and you go all the way to the end, and you read what happens to all the characters so then you can understand what's happening. Right? But it's the last chapter where the author ties up all of the loose ends. We don't know where it's all going, but in the end, he ties up all of the loose ends. Now, I'm, I'm a movie uh, I'm a movie buff. My boys are at the age where they like adventure movies, and so I took them to the latest Avenger movie. And, and I won't give any spoilers if you haven't seen it, but one of the evil characters apparently wins. But what you got to know about the movie is it's in the middle. Someone's going to come along, and they're going to write the last chapter and tie up the things that in the middle seemed like grief and tragedy to us, but at the end, we'll understand. In the end, it'll make sense. So you got to ask yourself the question, who ends all of this? I mean, how's this all end? Do we, are we all just worm food and at some point we're all gone and the worms inhabit this ball floating through space? Does, does the sun just burn up? When we lay you in the ground, is that it? Or are, like John, can you hear... The message that Jesus is the Omega and that even then he's still writing the story and even then when we put you in a box and we lay you in the ground, that even that's not the end. I love how, I love how the Apostle Paul says it in Philippians chapter 2. He says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven on earth and under earth and every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When, when, when John is saying to us that he's the Alpha and the Omega, he's the first and the last, he's saying, this is who is in charge. 
So you've got to pause and apply this to your life and ask yourself the question, who have I given the first word to in my life? In other words, whose advice am I taking for how to live my life? And then you've got to honestly ask, say, who have I given the last word to? Who is it that is calling the shots in my life? Now, we have a, we have a word for this when, we, when someone gives God the first and the last word in their life. And, and it's a word that kind of gets misunderstood. But the word is worship. In fact, many of the scenes in Revelation are scenes of worship with all of these people around the throne on their faces saying, holy, 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 and hallelujah, and salvation belongs to our God. Tim read one of them just a little bit ago. All these scenes of worship. Now, you think, well, God's like making them worship him. No, no, no. They're not doing it because they have to. They're doing it because they want to. And we do this all the time. Whatever we think is valuable, whatever thing we worship, we tell everybody about. Uh, if you watch the NBA Finals this week, LeBron James, maybe the greatest of all time to play the game, scored 50 points. And it's the first time anyone has scored 50 points and that team has lost. But still, people were online like, LeBron, LeBron is the greatest. No one was making them do that. They wanted to say how great he was. They were worshiping the gift that LeBron is to the game is what they were doing. And, and whatever you worship is whatever you pay attention to the most. And John is saying the one that's worth your worship is the Alpha and the Omega. That's who you need to give your time to. Now, we have substitutes. We have substitutes all the time where uh, John Calvin says that the heart is, a, is an idol factory. The human heart is an idol factory. We're always making up other gods to give our value to and our time to. I, I think the three most common ones are uh, probably money, sex, and power, or if you like, you could call it stuff, pleasure, and control. And, and here's the issue. Everybody worships, even if you're not religious, everybody worships something. Everybody gives their allegiance to something. Everybody gives the first and last word to something. It just, it just depends on who or what you worship. So just for the last couple minutes here as we're closing, I want to give you three realities worship brings into your life, okay? Three realities worship brings into your life when you worship God as the Alpha and the Omega. Number one is you have boundaries. Boundaries are, if you think about it, like a yard and a fence in a yard and a gate, and you get to determine who comes in and who goes out. You have that freedom as a human being. You get to decide who comes into your life and who comes out of your life. And, and boundaries are about safety and security and trust. And if Jesus is the first and the last word in your life, then he is the filter for deciding what gets in and out of your life. In fact, John even says in, in his gospel, he says, listen, Jesus says, I am the gate. I decide who comes in and who goes out. And if you were to worship something, instead of Jesus as the Alpha and Omega, say you were to worship pleasure, then what you're going to do is you're only going to let in whoever makes you feel good, and you're going to keep out anyone who doesn't make you feel good. And what will become of you is you'll become a user of people and a lover of things instead of a lover of people and a user of things. And you'll go look to some app like Tinder for your salvation. Now, if you don't know what Tinder is, don't Google it. I've never been on it, but I've heard the stories. It's people swiping, looking for someone to let in. Because they're saying, you know, pleasure is pretty much the ultimate good in my life. But when you worship 
the alpha and the omega, see, it creates safety and security and trust by building boundaries around your stuff and your body and your desires. And so you let God call the shots about your body, your money, and your power, and you take God's advice about your body, what to do with your body and your money and your power. And then you're kept, listen, if you're a high school graduate, then you're kept safe and secure, and you don't lose faith. You don't lose faith in yourself. You don't lose faith in humanity. You don't lose faith in where this whole project is going like so many of us who have been jaded by life and worshipped other things and we found out people hurt us in the process. Get boundaries when you worship God. Second is you get purpose. When you worship God with your life, you're giving yourself to something bigger. And when you worship stuff, pleasure, and control, the problem is that you become like the thing that you worship. And so if you worship stuff, or you worship money. Money is cold and lifeless. And if that is the pursuit of your life, I've got to make a lot of money. In the end, you're going to have a lot of money, but you're going to be cold and lifeless. Because we become like the thing that we worship. Or if you worship pleasure, then you're going to, here's what you're going to become. Always longing, but never satisfied. Or if you always have to have control, then you're going to become ruthless, heartless, and an abuser. But if you, if you become like the thing that you worship, and you worship the Alpha and Omega, guess who you become like? You become like Jesus. Third thing is that you get hope. Uh, we can't function without hope. Hope's like air. And uh, many of you, especially graduates, you're, you're stepping into life, and you're hoping that great things will happen. But what hope will you get if all you are looking forward to is stuff and pleasure and control. Listen, here's your end, if that's your end game. Your end is you will always live a life of grasping. Oh, I almost had it. Just a little bit more. One more time. One more person. And you're always going to want that. You're almost going to get it, but you're never going to quite get it. Instead, if you worship the alpha and the omega with your life, then what happens is you get hope. There's a guy uh, named George Frederick Handel. Handel uh, wrote music in the 1700s. Stay with me. <laughs> Some of you are like, what? I'm done. Uh, stay with me on this. He wrote one of the most famous pieces of music that gets uh, played every Christmas. The Hallelujah Chorus. Uh, hallelujah, Hallelujah. You know that, that song? And, and um, you hear it in the store when you go places in background for movies. That was actually part of a broader piece of music he wrote called The Messiah, and um, he wrote it in just a few weeks, and he, he said, he wrote it furiously, he took many of the words from the book of Revelation, in fact, the Hallelujah Chorus is a, a, a set to music uh, of the text uh, in, later in Revelation, um, but he, he wrote it, and he came out, and he said, I think I have seen heaven itself, it's probably his most, his most famous work of music, and the first time that the Hallelujah Chorus was performed the messiah when they got to the hallelujah chorus the king uh, of that country where, where Handel wrote the the song was in the audience and he was so overcome by the hope of the words that he heard and the sound of the music that he spontaneously stood up and so when you're in the presence of the king everybody else oh yeah stand up so today if you go to a performance of the messiah when they get to the hallelujah chorus everyone stands up and he was overcome by these words from revelation that are about hope this is what it says. And the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever and ever. Amen. I mean, that's hope. That's purpose. That's boundaries. 
And if you're not worshiping the Alpha and Omega, where are you going to get that? Where are you going to get that? Well, I want to pray this into your life. So I want to invite you to stand with me if you would. And I'd like to pray as we go. Uh, God, right here in this moment, we're so glad that you speak to us. We didn't come here today uh, to be mildly entertained. Um, We didn't come here to be amused. We came to meet you. We came to hear from you. And so you've always been in the habit of speaking to us, and you have spoken again and again through the scriptures and again and again through Revelation, and we don't want to miss the central message that that you're the beginning and the end. You're the first and the last. You're the Alpha and Omega. You're the one whose advice we need to take. You're the one who has the last word. You, You can make sense of what we cannot make sense of. And so even right now in this moment, we want to surrender our lives to you. We want to turn our lives over to you who sees the end from the beginning in a way we just cannot. And so in our lives, be the Alpha and the Omega. We ask for this in your name. All God's people said, amen. We always leave you with a blessing. You'll see people holding out their hands. It's their way of receiving it. If you'd like to do that, great. If not, not comfortable with that, that's okay too. Receive this blessing. You're sent from this place now to love God, to love people, and to serve the world. In Jesus' name, hug someone. Tell them you love them. See ya.